Well, I do invite you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16 this morning. Ecclesiastes 4, 13 through 16. God's word says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. As I study this passage, uh, read in one commentary, uh, the commentator wrote, Any translation and hence interpretation of verses 13 through 16 is uncertain because of the vagueness of the text. So that's really what you want to hear from your common commentary, that you can't really accurately translate this, and therefore you can't really interpret it. And I'm not sure why he bothered writing several pages about it, but here we are. But we're going to forge forward because I think even though there is some vagueness in the text, you read it and you, know, you catch the gist of what, what Solomon is saying here. And the reason that uh, this text is difficult Uh, the Hebrew is difficult. It's vague. So look at verse 13. Is verse 13 talking about one king who started out as a poor prisoner but rose to the throne and is now unwilling to listen to advisors? Or is it speaking of a young king that takes the place of an old stubborn king? And then in verse 14, to whom is verse 14 referring does the he there, it says he, he went from prison to the throne, does he, does he refer to the old king or to the poor and the wise youth? Or is that those two people the same person? And then verse 15 refers to a youth, but the, the Hebrew actually says a second youth, which is a very strange construction in Hebrew. Is this the youth that's referred to in verse 13, or is this another youth who's taking place of the first youth? He's the second youth, and it's kind of a succession of youths that are coming to the throne. And again, verse 16, to whom does the pronoun him refer? Is this the third youth, the second youth, or the first king? It's hard to tell. And so we don't want to get lost in all the little details about it. You know, the Puritans were great about taking a verse of Scripture and really digging in it and just tearing it all apart, I don't think they could do that to this, to this verse because it is a little vague. But the general statement here about what Solomon is communicating to us is, is fairly clear. It's generally clear what Solomon is saying to us. He first points us to this old foolish king, and then he makes 
uh, a point about the subjects of the king. And that really that's the two things that I want to talk about this morning. And the common denominator between the king, the old foolish king, and the subjects of the king is that both are inconstant. You see there I've entitled this sermon The Inconstancy of People. And uh, I'm, I, I, I deliberately chose that word inconstant. It's not a word we use often. But I, I wanted that word because it really does capture um, humanity and what's being communicated here. One who is inconstant is not constant. Okay. They're fickle. They, they change. Inconstancy means changeability, not sticking to a predetermined course. So first we see this king and his inconstancy. It says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So the old and foolish king no longer knew how to take advice. And that means that he previously did know how to take advice. It seems that he's now in his old age become wise in his own eyes and he doesn't need any advisors. He doesn't want anybody telling him what to do. See, he's changed. When he was younger, he took advice. Now he doesn't. And if you put verse 13 and 14 together and you take it to be referring to the old king that once he was a a youth, a poor youth. He was actually in prison, and through his wisdom, he rose through the ranks and came to a place where he ascended to the throne, and he's been ruling all these people, and now he has gotten so wise in his own eyes that he no longer listens to his advisors. He's changed. He's become inconstant. He no longer felt he needed advisors which is a foolish move for everyone. Proverbs 15:22 says, "Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed." Proverbs 11:14, "Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors there is safety." So this king and all of us for that matter, uh, we need advice. We need counsel. We shouldn't just go it all alone, but we need the help of others to guide and direct us, especially when our lives are a mess. Uh, we need the advice of people who can help us and guide us and direct us and get us out of our foolish ways and help us to chart a path of wisdom. With many counselors, there's wisdom with many counselors. And this ties in with the previous verses that we talked about two weeks ago. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, and even the previous verses to that, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who, al who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And then we have this king here. This king has decided to go it alone. He doesn't need anybody else. He doesn't need advisors, and that's foolish. He foolishly believes he needs no one else, and he's going to cause many people to suffer for his inconstancy. 
because he's in a leadership position and people depend upon him. It would be better for him to be a youth, an inexperienced person. It would be better for him to be like that, someone who is poor instead of a king who is foolish and doesn't take advice. And the same is true for all of us as well. Now, from this king, Solomon then turns his attention to the subjects of the king. Not only is the king inconstant, but his subjects are inconstant. Verse 15 and 16, I I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. And surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. And the key sentence is in the middle of verse 16. Those who come later will not rejoice in him. This king had, whether it's the first king, the old king, or whether it's one of the youths that come after and take over the throne from the old king, it doesn't matter. That, that little point doesn't really matter. What matters is that no matter how popular the king is, no matter how many people are his subjects, there's going to come a time in the future, the next generation comes along, and they, they don't regard the king as that great anymore. You think about, you know, we've had 44 presidents in our nation. Actually, 45 presidencies, but 44 presidents. Grover Cleveland had two terms, but they were non-consecutive. I just learned that. I mean, I probably learned it back in school, but I'd forgotten it. But uh, it was interesting to read and look down the list, and you think about, you know, some of the, some of the presidents in the past. I mean, I mean, we don't think about much about Chester Arthur. Nobody talks about Chester Arthur anymore or Millard Fillmore, uh, some of these guys that you, you don't know much about. But I'm sure at the time, in fact, one of the, I was reading through, and I can't remember which one, one of the presidents was a very contentious election. It was in the 20s. And, uh, and he uh, was elected, and you know he died right after he was president and pretty much forgotten, but had, did some pretty good things. And it was a time that was very similar to our times when you read the history of it, but we're not talking about him. So it's the same thing here. People's opinion changes. You just think about the, the, the presidents in our lifetime, how our opinions have changed as time goes on, or our opinions have become maybe more realistic in some ways as, as we have been able to judge by history, the, their, their time in office. But you see how fickle people are. Charles Bridges is a great commentator from previous centuries, but he wrote a, a commentary on Ecclesiastes, and he says this about this, this, these two verses. The preacher, Solomon, now turns to the people. He finds the same vanity and vexation as elsewhere. He takes an extensive survey, considering all the living which walk under the sun. Generation after generation pass before his mind's eye. All is the same character. The hereditary disease is fondness for change. Fondness for change. And he goes on. The love of change is a dominant principle of selfishness. Insensible to our present blessings 
and craving for some imaginary good, the man is rarely found who is not more taken up with the prospect of future hopes than with the enjoyment of his present possession. And really, that's just about contentment. It's always something else, something in the future, something just beyond our grasp that we think is going to make us happy when we're missing out, living our lives and enjoying what we do have. We want change. We want something different. In fact, the last four presidents, Clinton, Bush, President Obama, and President Trump, have all run and won their first races as the change candidate. And the first three... President Clinton, Bush, and Obama, the first three won re-election because they need more time to enact their changes. And I have a feeling that this election here is all about change, the one we're going through at the moment. People are generally negative about the direction of our country, and we keep looking to presidents to fix it. Now, obviously, our, our political climate here in the United States is causing a lot of angst and turmoil. We see the corruption. We see the lack of character in our leaders. And we don't see anything being done about it. And that's frustrating. We see the direction our country is taking. And it's alarming or exciting depending on which side you're on. But both sides are putting hope in political leaders to save us from the other side. We've become divided. And I've seen some people say things like, President Trump is our savior. And I'm sure there are people who are for Biden. President Biden is going to save us. That's strange way to talk about a human being. And I've seen that on Twitter, which is of the devil, I'm sure. What we need to remember, though, is kings and presidents and other political figures are inconstant. They're fallible, sinful human beings. And, even, and we may prop up one guy as to be the, the man of the hour, but in coming years, his popularity will wane and he'll pass forgotten. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be good citizens. We should vote and hold our leaders accountable. We should do all we can to be good citizens of the nation in which we live, promote justice and righteousness and truth in our nation. Certainly. But what if we don't get it? What if Christianity becomes criminalized? What if our nation takes a change into a a place where we never imagined it, it would be? Let's not lose sight of the purpose of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is showing us the folly and the emptiness, the vanity of living life under the sun, as he says, without any regard for God. It's just living horizontally. You're just the here and now, this life is all that you're regarding. And he's saying that is vanity. It's empty. It's pointless. It's not lasting. And at the end of the book, he is going to encourage us to fear God and obey him. That's the conclusion of the matter, he says. He's he's showing us the futility of living in this life, living this life without any regard to the Lord. It's empty and pointless. And he's saying, look, 
You need to regard God in everything, everything in your life. And it goes to, as well, our leaders. Because we're fickle, we want change, people change, leaders change. Change is all around us, it's spinning around us. But God never change, changes. If you don't have God, all you can do is hope that those who have the power are on your side. And if they're not, then your life will likely be miserable. It all depends on inconstant human beings, and that is vanity and emptiness. That's what Solomon is communicating to us this morning. Psalm 118, 8 through 9 says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And I think he uses the term princes there, not kings, because what is a prince? He's the, he's the next in line. You think, oh, wait till the prince takes over. When he takes over, everything's going to be different. Everything's going to be better. Proverbs 29, 26. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. And we think somebody's going to save us or give us justice or do whatever. He's telling us, look to the Lord for justice. And then Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. But blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth a sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. What I want us to see this morning is divine constancy. You know, we've got the, the, the inconstancy of kings and our leaders. We've got the inconstancy of, of humanity in general. But in all of this uncertainty and change and, and the angst that we have about all of that, God never changes. God's word remains true and it is, he is a rock, a refuge. Uh, he, is, he is a fortress in the midst of all this turmoil in which we're living. And when we talk about divine constancy, what we're talking about is, uh, is his immutability. That's a theological term. It's one of God's characteristics. Immutability. Immutability means that God doesn't change. That's all it means. He's, he's changeless. Herman Bovink, in his great work, The Doctrine of God, writes this, The immutability of God is that perfection of God by which he is devoid of all change, not only in his being, but also in his perfections and in his purposes and promises. So God himself as a being doesn't change. God's purposes never change. His plans never change. And his promises never change. In virtue of this attribute, he, ex he is exalted above all becoming and is free from all 
accession and diminution and from all growth or decay in his being or perfections. Now let me explain what he says there. He is exalted above all becoming. He's not evolving. He's not becoming. He is. He's perfect already. And he is not, uh, he is free from all accession, addition. He's not, he's not being added to, nor is he subject to diminution, which is reduction. So there's no addition or subtraction to God. He's perfect. And he doesn't grow, nor does he decay in his being or in his perfections. He goes on. His knowledge and plans... His moral principles and volitions, his will, remain forever the same. Even reason teaches us that no change is possible in God since a change is either for better or for worse. But in God, as the absolute perfection, improvement and deterioration are both equally impossible. I just want you to just think about that. Look at God for a minute and just revel in his being, his promises, his absolute perfection. That's the God that we worship. That's the God who has promised to be our God and who has invited us to be his people. There is change around about him, change in the relations of men to him, but there is no change in his being, his attributes, his purpose, his motives of action, or his promises. We change. Everything changes, but God doesn't change. His word is sure and true forever. And Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ, the Savior, the only Savior, is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the constant Savior. And that's the one to whom we need to look for salvation. There is no hope in any other. It is only Him. And I want you to just rest in that fact today. As the we have a pandemic, we have unrest, we have election uncertainty, we don't know what the future holds, but God does. He holds it in his hands. He, he's planned it. He has a purpose. He has a will, and it doesn't change. It's not dependent on any human being. He doesn't change because humans change. He is the same, and he's carrying out his will, his plan. He's fulfilling his promises to us and we can rest in that fact we can trust in that fact and while no matter what the future holds whether we become like Christians in China where there's deep persecution we can trust in the Lord no matter what happens around us we can trust him always 100% and we know that yes we may have trouble but, as Paul said, they're light and momentary troubles compared to the eternal weight of glory. That's the promise that God has for his people, the eternal weight, value of glory for his children. I want you to rest in that today and find comfort in that.
Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word that is such a rock for us, such a comfort to us, such a consolation in the midst of the turmoil of our lives. Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith, grant us faith and a trust in you. We pray, Lord, that, that you would uh, help us not to look to idols or other people or anything else to save us, to be our comfort, to be our security, to be our peace, to be our joy. We pray, Lord, that it would only be you. Help us to loosen our grip on the idols of the heart and the things of this world that, that tempt us, that make us think that that's what we need to have a fulfilling life when really all we need is you. Help us to, help us to believe that and live in light of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.